And so today we come to close out our study in John chapter 4. We've been in this chapter for a number of weeks now. Today's message, when that day comes. We'll talk more about what that means, but now give your attention to this reading. Uh, John 4, 43 to 54. I'll make some comments on the text as we go through before we get to the sermon proper. After two days, <clears throat> he departed for Galilee. Now, this is the two days he's been in Samaria. We'll make, give the background in just a moment. Now, notice this, verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast, that is the feast of Pentecost, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to notice where he's coming now, Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum there was an official. Now your translation may say nobleman, it may say something other than official. We'll talk about this in just a moment as to who this is. But he has a son who was ill. When that man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. And he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. And there ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. So, as we just read, <clears throat> he, he's been in Sakar of Samaria after he met the woman at the well. Let's just review that very quickly. He meets this woman at the well. He has this remarkable conversation with her. And in addition to her, there were many more Samaritans who came to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And then he leaves Sakar and he travels to Cana in Galilee, where he's been before. Now, from where he was to where he was going was roughly 49 or 50 miles. And so it would have taken Jesus and his apostles two or three days to walk that distance. Jesus, we know, was shunned by the religious leaders of the Jews, at least in many places. That's one reason for the comment that was made about a prophet not having honor in his own hometown. Now, Jesus was from the Galilee region. He's from Nazareth, grew up there, but now he's going to Cana, he's going to Capernaum. All these places are within reasonable distance of each other, so you could say this was his home region. In Matthew 13, verse 57, in Mark 6, 4, Luke 4, 24, we have similar comments made about the fact that Jesus was not well received by his own. But on this occasion, his reception among the Galileans, the people who you know, saw him and, and went to him when he got to the area, that was a good reception. So why, why make this comment? The woman at the well, the men of Sakar, had received him at his word as the Messiah. The people of Galilee 
Well, they were more ready for the miracles than for the man. That was the difference. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And when the official, the nobleman, the officer showed faith before a miracle was performed, Jesus turns to the Galileans and asks them, would you people believe anything without some spectacle? And so we're presented with a contrast between the officer and the Galileans. Now, let me just say the question as to who this man was, this nobleman, this officer, this official. The Greek term here is basilikos. Um, And this man was evidently an official, a magistrate, an appointed officer by King Herod Antipas. Now, technically, Herod, this particular Herod was not king, although I think Historically, he fancied himself as thinking this was not Herod the Great. This was one of his sons or nephews or something like that. And so this man, this Basilikos, this official, he would have been the king's official representative in that area. This is a word that can mean official. It can mean someone of royal blood. It can be mean referring to a, a servant of such a person. At any rate, it's somebody with status. And the man asked Jesus to go to Capernaum to heal his son, who was at that point near death. And then we have people being told by the Lord, verse 48, unless you people see the signs and wonders, you just won't believe, will you? And let's understand that this was addressed to the people as well as to that official. So the official pleads with him, and he says, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. So the Basilicus returns home to meet, uh, on the way there, the servants who've come out to see him and report his son's miraculous recovery. And so he and his whole household believed, according to verses 51 to 53. In verse 54, we read that this was the Lord's second miracle after departing from Judea into Galilee. Now, I think that what's being said there is that after leaving Judea, he performs a second miracle that could be called a sign, a revelatory act. And interestingly, as we pointed out, the the location is Cana of Galilee, where the first miraculous conversion of water into wine had occurred. And we read that in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And in that first sign, our Lord takes ordinary water, a natural thing, and he turns it into something equally natural, uh, uh, the, the wine. Dr. Rushduni observed that Jesus' presence glorifies the natural. His power raises the natural to a new level. Now, my friends, what is happening here? in terms of the mechanics, in terms of the sweep of biblical history, in terms of what we are being told about God and his power and authority is extremely important. This miracle, it points to the glorification of this world in the new creation of Christ Jesus and the kingdom and and the transformation of our lives by his regenerating power. He is the life giver and the renewer of all things. So in that first miracle at Cana, water's turned into wine, but a greater miracle occurs in the second occasion where near death is turned into life. Now the word translated signs here in verse 48 is the same Greek term 
semiah in this case, that's translated as miracles back in John chapter 2, verse 11. Now, you notice earlier we heard from the Older Testament reading in 1 Kings 17 how the prophet Elijah resurrected the dead son of a widow and he returned him to his mother. And he said to her, your son is alive. And here our Lord echoes Elijah saying the same thing. And in a similar way, a parallel way, the men of Elijah's day, they rejected him. He was not well received. And so too in the days of our Lord, he having healed many, many people and raised some from the dead, was crucified as the ultimate rejection. Dr. Rastuni has said that men hate life because they hate God. This is in keeping with what God declares in Proverbs 8, 36, a passage quoted many times from this pulpit where God says, all they that hate me are in love with death. It's important to be reminded of that fact as we enter the so-called Halloween season where people who are in love with death decorate their yards with all manner of grisly evil things. Now, I'm not going to get into the deal about whether or not you should, you know, put a, a pumpkin or a jack-o'-lantern on your front porch. I'm not talking about that. I mean, there are houses, and you don't have to drive too far from where we are. I know of one house just a couple of miles from here where the entire front yard is full of the most grisly, gut-wrenching, blood-curdling things that I can't imagine how anybody in their right mind would do this to their yard. You know, people impaled on spears, hanging, you know, from their necks, burn, being burned at the stake. Not, not just simply jack-o'-lantern boo kind of stuff. People are in love with death in this culture because they hate God. And Paul spoke of this in Romans 8, verse 7, where he said, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Or to put it another way, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. But for those who follow Jesus the Christ, it is the law of God, his divine law word, that is our pattern, our way of life. And so it is that those who hate God, they also hate his law. You can't hate one without hating the other. And therefore, they hate the people of his law. And any law order, any law society based on God's law, they want no part of it. They want to destroy it. And because of that hatred of God, the miracles of our Lord commended him to many, many people. But he himself was despised and rejected by the big shots, the men who ought to have accepted him. So those two miracles at Canaan. They are signposts. They are pointers to the coming full, abundant life in Christ. They show us that although we are indeed surrounded by an ocean of death, there is a much bigger ocean of life, and that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. So then on an individual level, you know, we can, we can learn about all these mechanics and, and Various things that are going on in the text. You know, it's like this. If you, uh, if you drive a car, you know, you have to know something about how to drive, obviously, but in order to successfully drive a car from your home to your workplace or maybe from your home clear across the country, you don't need to know the full dynamics and, and mechanics of how an engine works and all the various things that somebody who really knows automobiles can take an engine apart and put it back together and change the brakes and all that kind of thing. 
But it certainly would do you a lot of good to know something more than just to simply how to turn a key or press a button and crank the car up and drive. At some point, you've got to know a little bit more than that if you're going to have good success. It's the same here with this, my friends. We have to know the mechanics if we're really going to understand what Scripture is teaching us. But then, sort of in the opposite direction, if all we know are the mechanics, if all a person knows how to do, I guess a guy could be taught uh, how to completely dissemble an engine in a car and put it back together again without ever having been taught to drive. What good does that do? So yes, we can know the Greek tenses and Greek verbs and all the rest of that. But unless we know what this means for us, how this applies to us, it's not all that helpful. And God never intended his word to be just an academic study. And so on an individual level, we need to remember that trials and problems are common to all human beings. Not just people at the bottom of the scale, not just the, any and everybody. Everybody has to deal with this. And if these kinds of things, these kinds of problems have not come calling at your house yet, one day they will. Maybe it's too early for you. I, I was talking to a friend of mine a few days ago about a hotel down in Columbia I was interested in. It gotten rave reviews and I asked her if she had ever stayed there and knew anybody that had. And she said, no, but I've talked to a number of people that have. And she said, it's got fantastic ratings. And then she said, of course... It's too new to be bad. In other words, it hasn't been around quite long enough to get really bad reviews. Same here. Maybe you haven't lived long enough, or maybe you haven't had enough life circumstances to face trials and problems. But let me ask you today, do you know anything about bearing up under affliction and trial? Because that day will come. When your day comes, would you know where to turn for help and comfort? I guess it goes without saying, especially after what's happened in our society over the past couple of years. We live in an age of multinational corporations and businesses that not only make huge profits, but they have aspired to manage governments and even attempt to manage the world. And they market products and all kinds of things all over the earth. Last year, there was a book published about one particular multinational billion-dollar corporation, and the interesting thing contained in that book about this corporation is the humble beginnings of this company. It began in 1916 in a carpenter shop in the little country of Denmark, not Denmark, South Carolina, the country, the nation of Denmark. It was a carpenter shop and they built houses for people. But then the Great Depression struck in the early 1900s and the housing market collapsed in Denmark and a lot of other places. And so that little carpenter shop was converted in order to adapt to the circumstance into a small toy-making shop. They made wooden toys. They were already working with wood. Nobody could afford the house, so they made wooden toys. And then in 1960, another tragedy hit, tragedy hit that little company. Its wooden toy department burned to the ground, and they lost all of their inventory. And as a result of that trial, of that fire, the company owners decided to stake the entire future of that company on just one thing. They had already begun manufacturing before the fire struck small little plastic bricks that would interlock. 
And so that's what they decided to do. It would be on the production and marketing of some little interlocking bricks that they began to manufacture on a mass scale. And today, my friends, you and I know that company as Lego, L-E-G-O, the largest toy maker in the world with sales of annually of over a billion dollars. My friends, learn a lesson from this basilikos, this official, even from that company. Remember that none of us are free from the trials and sorrows of life. This guy was a big shot, but he had problems. His son was dying. Remember, too, though, that frequently it takes the dark in order for us to walk in the light of God's marvelous grace. Now, these Samaritans that we read about earlier in this chapter, they recognize Christ as the Savior of the world. And we're now told that this official and his whole household believed in Christ. And so John shows us, as he does, he has repeatedly, the evidence of what he wrote back in chapter 1. In fact... John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God, to them he gave the right to be God's own children. And so, friends, <clears throat> let's not overlook the application of this to us in our time. And I say this because this is another side to this story that is often missed or not discussed. I think that too often the, the church as an institution or so-called conservative politics and, and conservative uh, politicians and organizations, they see themselves as the source of deliverance and redemption in our modern times. And in doing that, these institutions, the church, governmental, political organizations, conservative movements, they seek to forget Christ and his power. The living God, my friends, can never be domesticated into an institution, and every attempt to do that, in the end, are total failures. I mean, consider that in the time of Jesus, there were two would-be world powers, controlling powers, divine powers. Obviously, the Roman Empire was on one. It saw itself as the epitome, the, the top of the heap of power on earth. For example, the Senate of Rome resigned to itself the ability to make or unmake gods. They could declare a man a god or say he's not a god. We, by the way, we see this surviving in the institution of the Roman Catholic Church, where they can declare a man or a woman a saint or not a saint. It's the same, the same principle. Eternal Rome was the fitting term where Rome depicted itself as the order of the ages, the new world order. But that wasn't the only one. There was also the religious and civil rulers of Judea. They were no less assured that they represented the divine order of the true God on earth. And they saw themselves as the controllers of that divine order. Their arrogance was obvious in their devising of what we refer to many times here, the Talmudic traditions of the Pharisees. And in that, they were seeking to define God's law, I guess originally it was, it was a, a helpful thing, the idea was. But they were doing this in terms of things that were contrary to God's law. For example, let me give you a concrete example here. 
just so we all understand what we're talking about. Keeping the Sabbath holy is a part of God's law. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy maidservant, nor thy manservant, the stranger that is within your gates, etc. So, the question naturally arises, well, what does that look like? Well, the Pharisees, they devise numerous rules of their own to supposedly try to help people understand this. But for, here's, here's the way it went, though. They devised rules and regulations about how far a person could walk on the Sabbath before they broke the law. Or whether or not they could eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath. Or an egg over which a hen had labored on the Sabbath only to produce it two days later. All of this, frankly, nutty stuff displaced the simple truth of God's law with human definitions. So people ended up obeying man-made rules rather than God's law. And in the world of that era, of the time of Jesus and Paul and the apostles, there were, they were people, they were these like this nobleman, this official, this basilicos, uh, Caesars, magistrates, who were simply people of powerful positions. Now this man in particular, this official, he was in his domain or sphere, the personification of the power of Herod Antipas. You know, Herod the king could not be every place at all times, and so he had his magistrates, his apostles, if you will, to represent him and speak for his power. We've seen the same thing in Pontius Pilate, you know, the memorable encounter that we'll come to in John 19, where he's speaking to Jesus. The Jews have accused Jesus. They want him crucified, and Pilate says to Jesus, you say nothing to me? Is it not clear to you that I have exousion, power to let you go free, and power to put you to death on the cross? Yes, they assume and assign to themselves divine power, so they think. But in the case of this basilicos, this man has a son who's dying, and he is powerless. Confronted with the issues of life and death, the powers of Rome, of King Herod, of the Pharisees, of any political party or presidential candidate, they are helpless. And what this miracle, this sign, this wonder of Jesus intends to tell us is that neither church as an institution nor the state as an institution or any human power can conquer the ultimate problems of life and death. The second sign given here in verse 54 at Cana of Galilee tells us that church and state cannot settle the problems of life in our world. Now, they may be vehicles for it, but it's only the triune God who made us that can ever resolve those kinds of problems. Because to renew life, to give new life, to resurrect dead life, that is nothing for him to do. He can do that easily. Our very being reborn is that kind of miracle, and it tells us that we cannot bring about a rebirth in any area of life and society apart from the triune God. And the history of the earth is the history of God's law-hating institutions and men attempting to do that very thing outside the boundaries of God's truth. All human efforts to bring about change, reformation, renaissance, cultural renewal, personal renewal, whatever it is, 
All efforts to do so without God are sin. They're sinful. And the signs and wonders in the Gospel of John are therefore, in that sense, a condemnation. They condemn all attempts to effect a reformation in this world, a revival, if you will, in this world, that somehow is apart from the regenerating power of God and the sanctifying power of his law. It's easy to spot people who are attempting to do that in some cases, but we must be on our guard, whether it be in terms of our our personal renewal, uh, the idea of renewing a church congregation or denomination, too easily. We can think we are adopting pious, holy things when, in fact, we're setting aside God's law word in an attempt to bring about some sort of powerful change, to address the problems of life and our own power. And that goes right back to the sin of man in the Garden of Eden. We have been delivered from that. And what we are learning in the Gospel of John is that we can do better than that because God himself has sent his Son into this world to lead us into the path of light and life. Let us pray.